0: Are you listening?
1: Kitteimasu ka?
2: Asu koe? Tte kō ga shimasu ka? Sai ascoltando. Вы слушаете? Nǐ zài tīng Estás escuchando?
0: Hören Sie zu?
1: Da li gushmidi?
0: Dam samrocho. هل تسمع? The Global Voices podcast.
3: The world is talking.
0: Are you listening?
3: Hello world, and welcome to another edition of the Global Voices podcast. I'm your audio friend, Jamila. In this edition, we're exploring the latest works and events within the Global Voices community and by friends who are changing or noting the cross-cultural elements of our lives online and off. First up, Silvia Vinas, our Latin American regional editor, has been finding out more about translation on the web. Intercontinental Cry is a grassroots journal for the global indigenous movement. It provides news, videos, petitions, commentary, and action alerts. The site recently launched in Spanish, too. So Sylvia had a chat with editor and publisher John aniwanika Sherto about spreading the news in a different language.
1: Personally, I've been doing amateur and independent translation for many different outlets for a while now, and I saw Intercontinental Cry was a site that I personally thought the information needs to be spread more in, in Spanish as well. So I had been talking to him about it. But I know the seed was planted earlier for him. We had a brief conversation, and then much, much later, I think even like a year maybe, I saw a post on the website about trying to start up a transition project again. Basically, I think out of luck and coincidence of me having... Happening to be there, we kind of started with Spanish as the first version of IC in another language, hopefully to grow, obviously.
0: So, the Spanish language is the first translation site to be launched?
1: Yes, it is. For me, I have a lot of political reasons why I think that that's the case, mm-hmm. and I think that it's worthwhile to pursue Spanish translation in particular, but also after scale, I think it would be important. And I know that see is looking to expand. So it just happened to be the first one because of my availability and John's ability at the right time.
0: So why do you think that starting with Spanish is so important?
1: Personally, there are so many indigenous struggles in the world. And I, I don't mean to try and compare them, but there is a lot of movement in Latin America around indigenous struggles. And I think it's great what John is doing in English, but some of his work, especially around the underreported struggles as, as they call them, I think is really, really important and deserves to be language of which for better or for worse is the language that many people both working with and within these indigenous these will be able to consume, which is Spanish. So I think for that reason I mean you could say this about many, many different indigenous communities and, and different languages, but just because of the kind of almost leftist turn in Latin America and the rise of more visible and more like indigenous politics i think it's really important that in a sense that we almost play like, catch up that we're able to make sure that some of that coverage both in english and in spanish
0: how does the translation process work
1: i had originally offered just to be a translator but then because we had a kind of larger visioning conversation john had just proposed to me at one point well why don't you do it and experience doing that kind of thing before, but never in any kind of formal way. So what I do is mostly editing people's translations there, that and that's a group of volunteers that hand in their translations to me and John, and we look them over. I, I did one translation for the opening round on the Kordofan in Sudan. Yeah, it's mostly just facilitating, you know, making sure things are formatted right, you know, thinking about word choice, not as so much translating. Yeah. At times it's translating, but more formatting flow that kind of stuff.
0: And how can translators join your team?
1: It's a little tough because some people are working and some people will, you know, they they want to take one round but not in the next round necessarily. But I would say we have about five or six people. It's a little grouping right now. You know, and I think that's honestly, that's a good number to work with. That allows you to work with each translator and kind of giving them advice on what's, what's working, what's not working. You know, not having so many that the voice of the website or the tone is so wildly different that it's like mm-hmm. jarring, you know. So it's, it's a small number for now.
0: Maybe it's too early to think about this, but have you thought about publishing original content in Spanish?
1: We've had that conversation and I, I, I wouldn't want to speak soon either. But I personally, like I said, I think this is a really exciting and important moment in Indigenous politics in general, in terms of visibility, presence, in terms of the urgency even of what's happening, world crises, environmental crises. That We have talked about specifically, for example, I'm Spanish, so there's all sorts of reasons that this comes into play, my own role in this, like what is my role in this, what am I trying to contribute coming from that legacy. So w- one of the things because of that, though, I have had a strong interest and abiding interest in um, Latin America Is one part of the lasting legacy of Spanish colonialism, but there are obviously other regions that were colonized um, mm-hmm. by the Spanish, and that because of that continue to have um, Spanish language culture that is produced out of those regions. So I'm talking about places like Equatorial Guinea, the Philippines, um, Western Sahara, And those are actually places where you have equally important business struggles going on in many cases, but that don't get the same as Latin America. So my interest, in turn personally, was trying to figure out a way to maybe get a little bit more original content around things like... Western Sahara, you know, I talk, some people don't even really know that the actual place, that it exists, that it's not just part of Morocco, you know, like, it's, it's interesting, you know, that there's such a lack of awareness, even in the Spanish language.
0: You always make goals as an editor to what you want to accomplish in a year or six months. What would you like to accomplish in this first year with Intercontinental Cry in Spanish?
1: The most important thing would be to establish consistency. Um, just, you know, in my experience, in a lot of translation projects, even Global Voices, you know, that there's so much energy and so much passion around the effort, there's so much involvement from so many different people that, you know, results, if you want to call them that, I, want to, I don't want to boil it down to that, honestly, because I don't think in that in a corporate, into comedy, but just to be technical, a lot of results vary, you know, mm-hmm. you get very different kinds of translations, very different kinds of translators, and I've actually been surprised by some of the translations that, not necessarily even in this case, but that I've had to go through before, and I've been like, well, this person, you know, being a native speaker doesn't necessarily make you a great translator. You know, and there's also that, that's why I said there's all those writerly skills. Mm. And I've been really surprised at just the way that a a really captivating article can be turned into something that is really confusing. So, you know, one of my struggles is I I don't think I'm necessarily God's gift to editing or translation. The, The challenge would be to bring together with all these different styles, to start working, I don't know, maybe seeing each other on the same page, kind of, to working towards a common tone. For me, there could be tiny choices, like, you know, I have an investment in queer issues for a whole host of reasons. I would hope one thing that we could establish as a kind of across-the-board editorial choice would be trying as much as possible to use gender-neutral references, you know, using arroba, or some people yeah. use x, you know, yeah. there's different ways of doing it. but. That is, that can be a political choice. There, another choice that I think is a little more controversial but would be interesting to me. Would be taking the route of some of the Venezuelan activists who have actually done away with terms like LGBT altogether. Use things like sexo genderly. I think there's a lot of room to do both a lot to do a lot in terms of consistency on the one hand, and then on the other hand of carving out a unique voice by taking clear stands on things.
0: Do you
3: know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at Global online slash lingua. Last month saw the announcement of the 2012 Rising Voices Grantees. Six new members have joined the global community, and each of the projects will receive microgrants to get their proposals off the ground. Congratulations to all of the grantees who come from Guatemala, the United States, Paraguay, Palestine, Peru and Burma. Beatrice Catanzaro is a visual artist and one of the new additions to the Rising Voices family with her project, Food Tales from Nablus. She's working with her friend Fatima to present women in the Old City and their culinary skills. I caught up with these two amazing ladies to find out more about their work.
4: We are uh, collaborating, Fatima, me and uh, another friend of us who is actually based in London. We started to develop already a couple of years ago an idea that we wanted to work on, which now developed in a project called Beit Al Karama. Basically, it's a women's center at the heart of the old city of Nablus. It's the first center for women where they can meet, socialize yes. and you know have a space for on their own. So, this was like the starting point of our I mean, our first step has a project. In the meanwhile, we understood that something that we really wanted to work around was the traditional food heritage of of Nablus and beyond Nablus of Palestine in general because it's quite unexplored field and because it assembled both an economical dimension. For instance, the fact that we we started to offer caterings, we organized lunches. We started a small cooking school where people can come and learn the local scene. And at the same, food is also a cultural space. It's something that connects with narratives, with stories, with history as well, and anthropology. So we thought that it was a good way to generate income for the women through the Women's Centre, as well as also to activate the cultural discourse to you know, look at food also in its uh, wider dimension.
3: For those of us who are not lucky enough to have visited yet, what's
4: the food like where you are? Palestine Embrace the same Arab kitchen, let us speak, of uh, Syria, Lebanon, all this, uh, this mm. region. So you have quite common items. Let us speak about the kind of salads that you can eat, tabbouleh, the Arab salad. As well as you have all those very long process-based kind of food like uh, uh, Ruara This is my pronunciation, Asian, but we have but also the Malfour. All food that you prepare... Through a long process, basically the wine leaves wrapped up with a filling of rice and meat and so on. So things that uh, implies quite a labor to produce them. You have, uh, of course, a lot of uh, rice in the kitchen. Let us say that the food is very... Implies a lot of time to be prepared. We have also the musakhan, Musa which is a yes. very interesting uh, mm-hmm. and very local uh, dish, which consists of large uh, pita bread, but of a brown kind. You basically fried onions and uh, you use. Oil, uh, uh, you use a spice called smaka, which is a very special spice that you can, basically, is difficult to find elsewhere, topped up with uh, roasted chicken. It's delicious. That you eat with uh, laban, which is a sort of thick yogurt.
3: In which case, the idea of cooking together sounds great. Is it a good community project to bring women together?
4: Now has been heavily attacked been under siege for uh, ten, years. ten years and the old city particularly has been uh, very severely attacked and uh, has normally happened women and children are the most unlucky figures in society when such thing occur so a lot of women they uh, really need uh, not only a space to meet each other but also a way to create some income for themselves and they are expert in food making
3: in which case, I'm sure it will be very popular with people who
4: come to lunch as well. Now that we are at the stage where we are opening up the centre only on demand for lunches. But we hope uh, in a year or so to be able to create uh, a little restaurant, uh, which we actually want to build on the top of the women's centre. And also to open a guest house. So we have a lot of things in the pipeline, so to speak.
3: What is the immediate action that you will take with the grant money in order to get this going?
4: Actually, it came in a very crucial moment for us because one of the things we really want to work on are the stories of the women, their food-related stories, you know, not only to look at the history of food, but also to look at the narratives that women have around food. So it came in, in the moment where we wanted to start to explore this possibility and also to give to uh, a number of 10, 15 women, an introduction to tools that can help them to express their creativity. In this sense, the grant will basically support a workshop that will give an introduction to women to um, audio-video tools, ranging from the mobile phone to small digital cameras, very simple tools, and give them an introduction how to use it creatively in order to collect stories related to food.
3: Most of us around the world will recognize the process of making a meal, but it's always wonderful to see how other people around the world do this. It's, it's a really nice idea to, to be able to share that. Are the women excited about showing people around the world how they make their food?
4: Absolutely. And also to unfold another dimension from this special region. When you speak about Palestine, the insight that you have of Palestine when you're outside the country you know we we are trying to go through a cultural path you know to unfold other dimensions that would uh, create different association with the palestinian uh, community to make people excited over something which is really shareable globally you know food is something that we all look at something uh, valuable
3: how did you all meet she came to my house to drink coffee and she didn't finish
4: it until now. That must be some good coffee. Yeah, it was very good. As my father used to say, the coffee that I offered to your mother was the most expensive one.
3: Will there be a time soon when we can see some of what's happening where you are and how the project progresses?
4: We have a website, of course, on which we are posting our activities, which is www.beitalkarama.org. There we keep our uh, information, so both the local activities, uh, you know, presentation that we do elsewhere about the project. Regarding the workshop, we are planning the workshop for uh, June, which will be before Ramadan, which is more convenient for us, because during Ramadan, women are all busy cooking uh, for the families, of course. So I suppose that the result will then be available online and on the blog of Raising Voices at that time. Do
1: you know about Global Voices Advocacy? With Global Voices Advocacy, we seek to build a global anti-censorship network of bloggers and online activists throughout the developing world dedicated to protecting freedom of expression and free access to information online. Find out more at GlobalVoicesOnline.org
3: Well, if there's one thing we like to share here at Global Voices, as well as stories, it has to be food. Very soon we will be at the Global Voices Summit meeting in Kenya. It will be a pleasure to meet and eat with colleagues from around the world. The way that traditional foods cross borders is also naturally of interest, so much so that Gustavo Riano, editor of OC Weekly and writer behind Ask a Mexican, has taken a culinary journey to find out how Mexican food has become so popular in the United States. It's all in his new book, Taco USA. Journalist, producer and author Cyrus Farivar chatted with Gustavo about the flavours that cross borders.
2: Any food's going to be different from even 100 miles away. That's a great thing about food. There's so many regional traditions that although you might be part of the family, sometimes they're almost indistinguishable once you venture past a certain region. So even in Mexico, for instance, the food that you'll have, say, in northern Mexico is completely different from the food you'll have in central Mexico. In northern Mexico, they're big on flour tortillas and burritos. Flour tortillas and burritos, at least until recently, until globalization, they weren't heard of in Central Mexico. My parents, they're from the Central Mexico state of Zacatecas, and they never had either flour tortillas or burritos until they came to the United States in the late 1960s. Similarly, here in the United States, you're going to have different regional traditions of Mexican food that are... In some ways, they'll be familiar to people from Mexico, but in other ways, they'll be completely alien. Say, the combo plate, say, burritos, say, of course, you know, refried beans baked under yellow cheese. It's still Mexican food, but it's just a different type of Mexican food.
5: I am a big fan of Mexican food, having grown up in another part of Southern California, in Santa Monica. Although I didn't come from a Mexican family, you know, definitely Mexican food is is something that you just get exposed to if you hang out in, in California for even a few days.
2: <laughs> Mexican food is the lingua franca of Southern California, kind of like Italian food and sandwiches are the lingua franca for regions on the East Coast. Here in Southern California, since it was part of Mexico, that's about the only thing any of us can agree on, on how great Mexican <laughs> food is.
5: I think one of the things also that I find kind of interesting is that is that there's lots of things that we think of in the U.S. as being Mexican. You mentioned burritos a moment ago. But I guess burritos aren't really officially Mexican either, huh? No, they're
2: Mexican. They, If, if we want to put a birthplace to the burrito, it's somewhere in the Sonoran Desert. In other words, that region between Arizona and Sonora. And the people of those regions, they never put a border upon themselves saying, okay, this part of the Sonoran Desert is... Mexico. And this part of the Sonoran Desert is the United States. It's Mexican food one way or another. And so again, that was a traditional place where you ate burritos in the borderlands. That said, that because it's limited to that area, doesn't somehow make it less Mexican than other dishes. You go down to southern Mexico to Oaxaca, where they eat grasshoppers, fried grasshoppers, chapulines. No one else in Mexico does that. But because of that, that somehow doesn't make it less Mexican than any of the other dishes around.
5: But I guess the burritos, though, that come from Sonora are different than the burritos that come from San Francisco.
2: When you have different regions, you're going to have different types of traditions. So even the taco... The taco, you could have a marlin taco from Sinaloa. You could have a taco acorazado, a battleship taco from Cuernavaca, which is the capital of the state of Morelos. You could have a taco of chapulines from Oaxaca, and you or you could have a taco de barbacoa from, say, Nuevo Leon or, you know, uh, Coahuila, which is northern Mexico. Similarly then, the burrito is a multifaceted creature. You could have the mission-style burrito of San Francisco, this big brick wrapped in foil that's now famous because of Chipotle, you could have the California burrito, which is a big burrito, not as big as a mission burrito, but a burrito, a big burrito stuffed with French fries. That's native to San Diego. You could have a smothered burrito, in other words, burrito on a plate covered in green or uh, red chili from New Mexico. Or, like, I just came back from El Paso, the burritos that they have there are completely different. The flour tortilla, it's like three times thicker. It's almost as thick as a pita, but it's still light. And even though they're thick, they're relatively small burritos and they're filled with everything from, say, turkey tails to hot dogs to uh, just plain old simple like shredded beef. But those are the burritos that Mexicans in Chihuahua and El Paso are eating. All of these burritos, by the way, are equally Mexican.
5: One of my favorite things in your book, you know, you talk about some of the things that maybe those of us who, who would like to think that we're in the know about food, you point to kind of the roles of some of the bigger commercial companies as to how Mexican food kind of became popularized in the United States. And you talk a little bit about, about the food chain Taco Bell. Tell me a little bit about that and, and the role that you think that, that it played in, in the spreading of, of Mexican food around the U.S. Uh, yeah, Taco Bell started,
2: it didn't start until 1962. So we're celebrating its 50th anniversary. But the history of it was its founder, Glenn Bell, in 19 late 1951, he opened a hamburger stand called Bell's Burgers and Hot Dogs in San Bernardino, California. He learned how to cook tacos from a Mexican restaurant right across the street from him called Meat La Cafe. Meat La still exists. It's celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. He knew that the taco had the potential to be America's next great fast food, and he was right. Uh, Within a decade, in that decade span between Bell's Burgers and Taco Bell, he modified his recipe. He commodified his recipe and and so in 62, he debuted with Taco Bell. He franchised the idea. And tacos just exploded from there ever since. And so Bell's genius was not knowing that the small little food stuff would be popular with Americans. One thing with Americans, they, from the moment we've been able to have the opportunity to have Mexican food, we have had that. So as a result, Taco Bell, what I call, I call Taco Bell, like a gateway drug for Americans to realize, hey, there's this type of food called Mexican food. We should really eat it, and but there's something better on the horizon, so let's eat it while we can and then hope and wait and know that better Mexican food is on its way. You talked
5: about the frozen margarita as well.
2: The frozen margarita machine, let's be specific. Okay. The frozen margarita was something that was part of making the margarita cocktail almost from its uh, creation. No one knows when the margarita was created. I'd say probably somehow the 1940s, maybe late 30s, but the margarita didn't become popular in the united states until the rise of tourism really the rise of tourism to mexico to puerto vallarta and cancun that was in late 50s early 60s so what you'd have in rosarito beach of course so what you'd have is these americans going down south to mexico getting a ball tequila going to their bartenders and saying, hey, I have this liquor. What can you do with it? So they would create this margarita. So margaritas were popular already starting in the mid-1960s in the United States, but it wasn't until Mariano Martinez of Dallas, he created a frozen margarita machine to expedite the margarita-making process that the margarita really took off. Not only did it take off, but it also helped legitimize sit-down Mexican restaurants. Really, Before the 1970s, most Mexican restaurants were just straightforward taco shops, or uh, Mexican food that you could buy from the grocery store and then heat in your microwave or in the oven. After the margarita, after the spread of margarita, you had Mexican food being legitimized. Yeah, it was combo plates. It's it's food that we today would call, oh, that's not authentic Mexican food. It nevertheless did what it was supposed to do for that particular era, which was serve as Mexican food for an American public ravenous for it.
5: You talk a little bit about one of these these newer generation of taco trucks. Uh, There was this Kogi... Uh, this Korean American taco truck that started in Los Angeles and it has now inspired lots of other hybrid tacos, Chinese tacos I've seen. There's another truck, I believe it's also in LA, that's the Chimale. They call it a Chinese tamal, basically. I love all of this stuff and all of these new flavors. and, And something that I love coming back to the US about is experiencing this wide diversity of food in such a short, geographical area, you know, whether it's Mexican food, American food, Ethiopian, Chinese, Korean, Persian, everything. And that's something that I feel like is really, really rare as I, as I travel around the globe.
2: Yeah, well, Southern California, of course, it's just a melting pot times a million. There's always going to be this trade-off. Myself, as I'm a Mexican by birth, I'm the child of Mexican immigrants. But you know, one day I'll have Persian food, say a good polo, like you know, or gourmet sazbi or something. Then the next day I'll go with a great pad Prick king from from a Thai restaurant. The next day I'll get an amazing. Ban me, and then the next one I'll, I'll get sangak yes sangak bread you know yeah. the, the, uh-huh. the best bread in the world from iran and of course in southern california once when you have all those options in front of you eventually you're going to start mixing and matching so you know with sangak i've stuffed it with some like say rice and uh some carne asada made like a burrito out of sangak and you know that it worked May, you know maybe not the best thing but it worked <laughs> similarly with koji korean barbecue tacos that happened because you had college students from UC Irvine and UCLA thinking, "Hey, okay, we're Korean, but we also love our Mexican food. So let's, you know, a, a Korean barbecue is kind of similar to carne asada. So let's put our our bulgogi and and in our galbi into." some uh, tortillas, and let's make some tacos out of it. Of course, this is nothing new though. In the 1960s, you had the so-called kosher burrito, which now we call a pastrami burrito. It was a Jewish burrito. You pastrami inside a flour tortilla, some cheese, and there you go, you have a burrito. The 1970s, you have the legendary okey dog, which is hot dogs, pastrami, some chili, and you wrap it in a tortilla. It's it. We call it an okey dog, but really it's a burrito. It, and I really think in Southern California, where, we, where again, Mexican food is that culinary lingua franca but you have all these cultures. Ultimately, we all go back to Mexican food to use as a springboard for all sorts of culinary creations.
3: Now that's how to remix food. What sort of culinary crossovers do you like to eat? Come and let us know at globalvoicesonline.org. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode, but as ever, a huge debt of thanks to all of our contributors and interviewees. Whether it's food for thought or something to eat, the Global Voices community usually has it covered. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you in the next edition. The Global Voices podcast. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening.
0: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices stories on Facebook, too.